0: filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak in all of these different languages, so all of this gathered group, all of these pilgrims are hearing the the wonders of God in their own language, then Peter stands up and explains, here's what's happening, it's the first sermon of the Christian era, and 3,000 people say yes, so it's a completely Jewish audience, so you've got 3,000 Jewish men and women who acknowledge that Jesus is now the Lord, And he's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's God. He's Messiah, the one sent by God to make everything right, to deliver his people. And so coming out of that, if you've ever been a part of an organization or a group where you've tried to incorporate new people, I want you to imagine. You've got 120 people in the morning. In the afternoon, you've got 3,120 people. So for every one person who's in the upper room in the morning... We've got 25 more people in the room in the evening who are part of the family now. That's massive. If you've been a part of a fraternity or sorority and you've got new classes coming in, or maybe you've been on a team and you've uh, brought new guys onto the team, or even in your small group, think about how the dynamics change when you go from 12 just to 14 people. Now imagine 120 to 3,120. That's a massive shift and how these guys are relating to each other. And so Luke zooms back and he says, here's what's happening in this group. Here's how they're connecting to one another. They've grown in size by 25 times. And here's what it, here, here are the things that they're doing to live together as followers of Jesus. So we're going to look at that. It's a very general statement here, Acts two forty two to 47. They devoted themselves, so that's the 3,120 of them, plus those who are being added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's one, and to fellowship, that's two, to the breaking of bread, that's three, and to prayer, that's four. Those are the four major elements of their life together. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Everyone outside of their group was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you may have heard this passage before if you've been in church for a long time. It's a popular church passage, and people, when they think about how do you form a Christian community, this is a place where a lot of people land. I don't think this is a prescription. I don't think Luke is saying, do these things. I think it's a description. Luke is saying, here's what these guys did. I think we look at that and go, they were very effective as a group in impacting their city, Jerusalem, and then in impacting the the broader world. And we want to be effective as well. And so there's some things that we can learn, but it's not a copy and paste. We don't just take what they did and drop it right into our context. It doesn't work. Our circumstances are radically different from theirs. Chiefly, I would say these guys, we mentioned this last week, are living under the um, assumption that Jesus is returning at any moment. When Peter explained Pentecost, he said, this stuff that you're all experiencing, wind and fire and all these different languages, that signals that we are now in the last days. History is about to come to a close. And so these guys are thinking, that means any moment. Now, just like you would if you heard last days. If you didn't have Peter... Uh, first, no, excuse me. Yeah, First Peter, where we read, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. If you didn't have that verse and you heard last days, you'd be thinking, okay, this thing's all about to wrap up. And so that's what they're thinking. That's the, part of the motivation for why they live such an intense life together, is because they think they're going to live this intense life together for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. This is the end. Now, that doesn't let us off the hook where we can say, well, we don't have to do any of the things that they did, because we are living at the, in the last days, and Jesus can return at any moment. We just don't know when that is. And so we've talked the past couple of weeks about this tension between recognizing this assignment we have to be witnesses and also the fact that we've got to get a job. And we've got to hold both of those things together. We've got to hold together the fact that we are in the, the end times. And history is coming to a close. And we still have to take care of our responsibilities. And what you see here, this first snapshot in Acts, you have a lot of people who are saying, who are going all in on Jesus is returning at any moment and he's going to come back to Jerusalem and he's going to establish the kingdom of God on earth right here. And so that motivates some of what they're doing. Again, that doesn't let us off the hook. It just gives us some context and hopefully will help. I think, to me, the most helpful thing is to look at values and say, what do those values look like? placed uh, in our life, and the four things that they were valuing were the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Apostles' teaching. So again, we've got 3,000 people, and I don't think they know anything about anything. You've got 120 people who, I believe, had some connection, some association with Jesus during his three years of public ministry. And then after his resurrection, that confirmed for them his identity as God and Messiah. And so that's where this 120 comes from, I think. So I think you've got 120 people who have some understanding of who Jesus is based on their interaction with him during his three years. And then I think you've got 3,000 people, most of whom have never even seen him, never even heard him. They're from all over the known world, places that Jesus never traveled. And so I think they don't know anything, again, about anything. They hear this first sermon from Peter, and they're convicted. They say, oh, God has sent the Messiah, and it's Jesus. And he is the Lord, and we are going to follow him. And they acknowledge his lordship in their life, and they begin to follow him. But they don't even know what that means. There is no New Testament at that. There's nothing. They have the Old Testament and these 120 folks. That's what they've got at this point. And so Jesus has spent three years preparing 12 men for this moment. It's three years investing in them, training them, teaching with, teaching them, helping Coaching them up, if you like that phrase. whatever He's giving them what he's got so that when he's gone, because he knows he's going to be gone, they can carry on his work. And so they're gathering together daily in Solomon's temple. So I think that's the gathering of the whole group, all three plus thousand of them. And they're listening to the twelve apostles who knew Jesus best those 12 men that Jesus had invested in for three years are listening to them, and those guys are explaining, this is who Jesus is, this is what he said, this is what he did, and this is what it means for you. And so for us, the easy parallel for that is the New Testament. That's what we have. That's the written record of who Jesus is and what Jesus said and what Jesus did and what that means for us. And just like they devoted themselves, continually gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, so we need to do the same thing, particularly with the New Testament. We need to be students. We need to know what the New Testament says about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We live in an information age. Stuff bounces around all over the place. Loudest voice wins. Rarely does truth, almost never does wisdom win out. Loudest, best slogan, those are the things that carry the day. And if you're going to stay grounded, you need to know, well, who is he? And what does it mean for me to follow him? You can just think about things just this week that are swirling around with marriage and bathrooms and all that stuff. And we got to know. you got to know. What does it mean to follow him? Now we have to decide, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? Like What, what does the Bible say about that? All of those things. If you're not a student of the Word, you're going to get pushed around by the loudest voice or you're just going to go with your gut. And sometimes your gut's not right. And so you want to make sure, I want to make sure that I, I understand I'm a student of the word so that he is shaping my beliefs and my behavior. Uh, fellowship, we're going to come back to that. It's that word koinonia. If you've been in a church for a while, you've probably heard that word thrown around. It's the intentional sharing of life together, participating in the life of another Uh, That idea they shared everything in common. They weren't communists. It didn't mean that when you became a Christian, everybody turned over the deeds of their house to the apostles, and they had all that. That's a cult. That's not what was going on at all. People retained their private property. They just didn't consider it their own. And so as needs arose, people sold their property to take care of their brothers and sisters. Again, you've got 3,000 people, many of whom don't live in Jerusalem, who are choosing to stay. So that creates this... Dynamic where you've got that however many handful of people who live in Jerusalem who have houses, and then all of these extra people who don't live there, who don't have houses, who are waiting on Jesus to come and establish the kingdom, and they've got to have a place to stay. And they don't have jobs because they haven't moved back home. And so that creates the context for this dynamic of people who have sharing with people who don't. It can get really tricky for us. What does that look like? I would say specifically the question to ask yourself, the resources that you have, so if you were to list those out on a sheet of paper, fundamentally in your heart, are they yours or are they his? Are they yours or are they God's? Can he, can, he, can he put his hand on your car and say, sell it? Could he put his hand on your house and say, open it up. I want somebody to come live with you. Could he put his hand on your bank account and say, give me a little more? I'm not saying he's asking you to do any of those things. But could he do those things? If the answer is no, you're probably not quite where you need to be in regard to your possessions. I think that's fundamentally what we have here is a disposition of the heart and an internal attitude that says, God, what I have is not mine. You can do whatever you want with it. And so from time to time, if you're putting your hand on my stuff and saying sell it in order to take care of these people, I'm going to sell it in order to take care of these people. And so I think that's the question for us. Is, is it yours or is it his? And that's something for you to wrestle with uh, with him. Well, uh, Breaking of bread, that's communion and sharing meals together as they ate in one another's homes. Uh, we've taken communion and pulled it into the a, a church service for them. Communion was attached to a meal. They called it a love feast. You had that going on and you had corporate prayer. We'll look at that again either next week or the week after. A little bit more on this koinonia thing. I think it's the most difficult um, practice that I see in Acts 2 for us to incorporate into our life. I don't think it, it's, it's un-American, and so many of the rhythms of our life work against this idea of sharing life with one another, participating in life together. Part of it is it is social media is probably part of it. I'm not active at all on social media, so you may disagree, but it seems to me that... Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever those things are, they seem to let people know about your life, which is different from sharing your life with somebody. They're not the same thing. Knowing information about what you're doing is different from me participating in what you're doing, if you can hear the difference there. So I think we've created a bit of an illusion of relationship that's really not there. And we may feel like we're connected to more people and connected more deeply than we really are. I'm not saying don't use social media. I'm just saying don't confuse your followers with your friends. They're not the same thing. And so what you want to do is say, do I, are there people who are actually participating in my life? Are there people who are sharing life with me? Are there people who just virtually know what I had for dinner or where I am at any particular moment? It's not the same thing. Another thing, and we're not going to change... We're not going back to pre-industrial revolution. But if you think about your car and what that does for you. I I want a car. I don't want to not have one. But what cars do is they allow us to spread our lives really thin. So if you were to drop a pin on your house. And then make a, a radius to your job. Or wherever the farthest point is that you go on a weekly basis. Make a circle. What are you talking about there? Like what's the... What is that? What's the area of your life? How many square miles are you talking about there that you travel? How how far out, how far flung from your home do you go? When you start thinking about sharing life, participating in life with others, and when significant parts of your life are 15 or 20 or 25 miles away, that's difficult. How many of you see the people that you work with outside of work? Some of you don't want to see them outside of work, but do you? How many of you see the people even that y'all go to school with outside of school? It's like summer. You, you lose track of all those people because you don't normally run into them. You're just thrown into class together for 50 minutes or an hour and a half every other day. Some of you don't even see the people in this room except in this room. Did any of y'all grow up in towns with less than ten thousand people? So not we don't want to do that necessarily. Definitely problems with small towns. One of the advantages of small towns is that makes this easier. It makes the koinonia thing easier because it's the same people. The people you're in church with, are the people you're in school with, are the people you're on sports teams with, because they're just not that many they're not that many people. So it's going to be the same people. If you wind up with a bum grade, then you're, you're kind of sunk all the way around. There's no new places to go. There's one high school, and there's three churches, and there's one sports league. There's four restaurants. Those kinds of things where you bang into the same people over and over again can make sharing with, participating in life easier. We don't live there. And I'm not saying we need to move there. We need to think about what does that look like here, where we live spread out because we can drive all any number of places. And the people who we see in those places, we don't necessarily see in other places. So it allows us to live these very fragmented, segmented lives. There are people who only know you as work you. And work you is only one slice of who you are. And so what does it look like to actually invite people into your life to share all of who you are with somebody, to ask somebody to participate in your life and for you to participate in their life with you? I don't have three bullet points for this, but it's important for us to figure out. Many of you have gone on short-term mission trips, and you come back and you're glowing from all of the high of being on this trip. One of the reasons is because of this. This is what you experience on a short-term mission trip. It's why you like it so much. It's not because there's no air conditioning, and it's not because you're eating beans and rice every meal, and it's not because you don't have a hot shower, and it's not because your bed is an inch thick. It's none of those things. It's because you're living this dynamic, this kingdom dynamic that you've been created for. You're all working together towards one end, And it's easier because you don't have any domestic responsibilities, and you don't have a job, and you don't have to go to school. You can give yourself fully to these people who you're with, and this work that you're doing. You're all living under the same roof a lot of times, some kind of bunkhouse. You're sharing every meal together. That's that's the picture that we see here in Acts chapter 2, and we get little tastes of it, sometimes on retreats. I think the strongest place I've seen it again is on short-term mission trips. And that's why when you come back, you're, you're, you're so excited and then you crash within three days. Because you get thrown back into this culture, which is so different. Not just culture, maybe you get thrown back into this rhythm, that's better, than the rhythm that you experienced in Costa Rica or Honduras or Nicaragua or wherever you happen to be. It's not about those countries. It's about the fact that you are experiencing this of this fellowship with 10 or 12 or 15 other people. And if you think about it, oftentimes you didn't even know those people before you signed up to go on the trip. All of that connecting happens in such a short period of time. You're wired for that. You think about bringing in 3,000 people from 10 or 12 different countries, 10 or 12 different languages. That's what we see here in Acts 12. Is because It says they're they're, they're together. The idea that it's one accord is what that means literally. They were committed to the same purpose. And you think about a mission trip, and that's what that looks like. And so we can't do that here. Somebody's got to pay the bills. you got to go to school. I don't want you to live with me, and you don't want to live with me. So how do we do those things? I was thinking, I'm looking at her, she was misty. She, when, I, when we graduated from seminary, I was like, you know what we need to do? We're going to do this thing, we're going to call it, it's called co-housing. We're going to have all these people, and we're just going to And she was like, what makes you think that you want to live with people? And what makes you think anybody wants to live with you? At all. You need your own refrigerator, you need your own, you don't, any, we're not going to do that. So what are we going to do? I don't have three bullet points. I want to raise this up and say, figure it out. Press into this. It's what you're made for. Some of y'all have experienced it and you're thinking, well, I'll just go on another mission trip. Go on another mission trip. That's great. It's one out of 52 weeks. What are you going to do the other 51? The the, the idea is not to move. It's to figure out here in Marietta, Cobb County, 2016. How do I invite y'all to share life with me? How do you invite me to participate with with you and living your life and you can't I don't think it was with all 3,120 I think it's when they were breaking up and they were in these homes and they really got to know each other and these are strangers a lot of times they were they were all Jews so they had that in common but really what they had in common was they all acknowledged that Jesus was the Lord and the Messiah and you've got that with other people begin to intentionally say how do I wrap my life around relationship to this level it is un-American and you don't have time You don't. You're going to have to begin to shift. And I'm going to have to begin to shift what life looks like. And the summer, I think, is a great time to do it. If nothing else, those of you with children, they're not in school. So it cuts down on carpools. It it creates some space. If you're married, you and your wife, you and your husband, think about it this summer. What would it look like for us to invite some people in, to do some things with other people? To begin to try to create this koinonia. those of you who are single, who do you want to pull in? who do you want? How does that begin to look in your own life? It's not about again, whether you're married or single. It's just a matter of thinking, I've got responsibility for my life. I want to begin to develop this fellowship with others. All right, last thing, Chapter three. So we've zoomed out, we've looked at the big picture, and now we look at one specific encounter. With one specific man. Here's a picture of what's going on. One day, we don't know when, Peter and John, two of the twelve, were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man was lame from birth. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So three in the afternoon, uh, at this point the church is all Jewish. They're still participating in the life of the temple. Prayer twice a day. Three o'clock was when the evening sacrifice was being prepared. So all observant Jews would go to the temple to pray. So if you're crippled, you can't work, best time to get money. Put you there in front of the gate so you'll have high traffic area, people coming and going. Giving to the poor is a primary way of showing devotion to God. So this guy's in a strategic spot. It's a place where he went often. Peter and John are walking in, and you notice the intensity, I think, in Peter. John kind of fades to the background pretty quick. But the intensity in Peter, he looks right at this guy. The guy looks at him. Peter says, look at us. And it stirs something up in this guy. He looks at him expectantly. He's thinking he's going to get money. Peter says, I don't have any money. And he pulls the guy up. And the guy's able to walk. He's able to go into the temple for the first time as someone who's crippled. He's considered blemished, and so he can't enter the temple. So you just read there the first time this guy was ever able to enter the temple. And at this point in history, the temple is really the dwelling place of God. It's the first time he's been able to enter into God's presence, something that we take for granted. And you see his response. Next week we'll look at Peter uses this as a springboard for a second sermon. We'll look at that next week. What I want us to see... Is this idea of Peter intentionally giving away what he's received. That's something Jesus says in Matthew 10. Freely you've received, so freely give. And we see that here with Peter. There's a lot of clarity for Peter around what he's got. Silver and gold I don't have, but I do have this. There's a lot of clarity around this guy's need. This is what more than money you need to walk. Because if you can walk, not only are you able to enter that temple, you can work. You're not going to have to sit here again. You don't have to, you're not going to have to beg anymore. Nobody's going to have to carry you around anywhere. There's a lot of clarity for Peter around what he has and what this guy needs, and he steps into that situation. And for some, that's a challenge for us. I've never met anybody who, I would say, has the boldness to try to pull somebody up out of a wheelchair. Never met that person yet. And I hope, as we read this, we're going to bounce off of it in a second, but I do want it to... I want you to think about it. The same spirit that lived within Jesus, lived within Peter, lives within you. Bo said earlier, the, 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 the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. Jesus sti- still heals people. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for some of us, that's a stretch. So we'll give you a couple of things for you to think about. Do you pray for people who are sick on your own, in your private time? That's a step. It's a big one. Huge one for most of us. This is where many of us never, we never get here. Will you pray for someone who's sick in their presence? Will you say to someone who's sick, can I pray for you right now? Not, I'll pray for you later, that's great, but right now, I'm going to pray for you. How does that make you feel? Are you willing to step into that? And then next, and I think this is where we're trying to grow as a church, is what does it look like to grow in confidence and understanding of how God answers those prayers? And to really be able to stand firmly on that. We're not there yet. I'm not there yet. And I think corporately we're not there yet either. But you may can put yourself somewhere on that line and say, what would be a step for me if I read Acts 3 and think I'm not yanking anybody up out of a wheelchair? Okay, well, are you praying for anyone who's sick right now on your own? Are you willing to pray for anyone who's sick in their presence? And you don't have to pray long. I mean, these prayers are short. And the ones Jesus prays in the Gospels are really short. You don't have to know any medical terminology or any conditions. You don't need to say, God, if it's your will. I've never known God to do anything other than what is his will to do. Ever. So just pray. God, heal this person. That's all you have to pray. And begin to see what happens. And again, that next step for us of really growing in confidence and understanding. But kind of moving aside from that, we all have that that Holy Spirit within us. Every one of us has been commissioned and given responsibility and opportunity and privilege to pray for people who are sick. But there's specific things that God has given to everyone. Every one of you has something. And I'm wondering, do you have clarity around that? Thomas Aquinas was a priest back in the 1200s, and um, they said there's a story. He walked in on the pope. I think it was Innocent II, and he was counting a bunch of money. And Innocent says, Thomas, never again can it be said of the church, silver and gold, we don't have. And Thomas said, yes, and it has not been said, rise and walk in a long time either. And so for many of us, we don't recognize what we've been given. And so we're not giving it away. To other people, And so if you're following Jesus, if you're 15 and you're following Jesus, he's given you something. If you're 35, if you're 55, it doesn't matter. He's given you something, and can you name it? Peter says, I don't have silver and gold, but this is what I do have. How about you? What do you have to give to someone else? Do you recognize, most of you, we probably don't interact with people a lot who are physically crippled, who can't get around. We interact with people all the time who are metaphorically crippled and can't get around. And we have the things that they need to move forward. You see what it did for this guy. He comes fully to life after Peter gives him what he has. He's able to experience God in a more real and deep and full way. It's not about drawing attention to yourself or making a name for yourself. None of those things. It's about helping people become fully who God has called and created them to be. So... What do you have? What has God given to you? A couple of things I thought of. Not advice. People can go check out a book if they want advice or they can watch daytime TV. Lots of people need insight and it's hard to come by. A lot of noise, not a lot of insight. Some of you, this is what God has given you. There are people in your life, and they're stuck, and you, can, you see the way for them to move forward. So share. Some of you have wisdom. That's insight you've gained from your own experience. Some of you, you have, you've, you've walked through things in your life, and you're saying, why did I have to go through that? And maybe one of the reasons is so I don't have to. It's wisdom. Teach me so I don't have to fall into the same ditch you fell into. Tell me what it's like. You have that. Share that. Some of you, you have revelation. That's insight that you didn't quote earn. It's not the school of hard knocks. It's stuff that God just has spoken to you. Knowledge. It's stuff that you've learned through studying. Some of you know the Bible well. You know business. You know life. You know parenting. Share those things with other people. Discernment. Knowing good from evil and black and white and right and wrong and all those kinds of things. And for you that seems super easy and super clear, but think about how muddled things are for so many. And sometimes what people need is just a clear word that says, hey, that person, why don't you stay stay away from them? This is not going to be good for you long term. That's discernment. You just know. There's just a knowing in you. I don't have it. If you do, it's a gift. Are you willing to share? So think about, are there people? Do you have insight? Some of you, it's encouragement. 1 Corinthians 14.3 talks about prophecy in the New Testament. It's not predicting the future. It's encouraging, it's comforting, it's strengthening. That's confusing, that word encouraging. Actually, it's a consoling is the word. Encouraging, strengthening, and comforting. This is how some of you are wired. We're not talking again about predicting the future. We're talking about helping people move forward. And those different words. That to me, it depends on the the, the state of the recipient. Some people are beat up and they feel like failures, and they and what they need is comfort. They need somebody. They need tenderness. Somebody put an arm around them. Some people are uh, they're on, they just need a help. They need a hand. Just, just a hand. Just pull me up just a little. I'm close. I just can't quite get there. It's aid. That's that word encouraging. Some people, you see things in them, and they just need kind of an attaboy. You can do it. Go for it. Spurring them on. The Lord knows those things, and some of you are wired that way. He's given you this gift to encourage other people. When you're around people, you can kind of see those things and you know what they need. Are you willing to give that to them? And you may say, well, anybody can do that. Well, so? The question is not, can anybody do it? It's, will you do it? And there are other things. You can think of plenty. There's just a few more on the screen that I thought of. There's service and there's leadership and there's money. Some of you have money and you can use that to help other people. And there's mercy and compassion. That God has given to us to give to other people. We just need clarity around what it is. And I think most of us walk around muddled most of the time. We don't recognize what God has given to us. Because to us it doesn't feel very special. We think everybody's got it. They don't. They don't. People are stuck for any number of reasons. And if you're in their life, it very well may be... That you have a key, if not the key, to get them unstuck. They may not be responsive. They may not be receptive. There's nothing you can do about that. This guy looks expectantly at Peter. You may have plenty of people in your life who never look expectantly towards you. That's okay. That's not on you. Pearls before swine. You can keep moving. But there are people in your life who will look expectantly towards you. They may not know. That you have what they need, but you do. And in a non-patronizing, non-condescending way, with humility, you can do that. I don't have silver, and I don't have gold, but I have this word of encouragement for you. I don't have silver, and I don't have gold, but I've been where you are, and I can help you move forward. I don't have silver, and I don't have gold, but I've got an hour, and let's go to lunch. Let's see what's, what you need. If I can, I can listen. I'm really good at that. Do you recognize what he's given to you, and are you willing to give it to others? Let's pray. And Just before the Lord, again, everybody, this, if you're following Jesus, no matter how young you are, no matter how long you've been following him, He's given you gifts. They may still be kind of raw and undeveloped, but that's okay. He's given you things. If you believe at all in the sovereignty of God, then he's placed you. Your life may be spread thin, but he's placed you. And there are people in those places that need what he's given to you. Everybody doesn't but some people do. And so just if you're willing in your heart, I want you to just ask this question. God, what have you given to me? What have you given to me? If you feel like he says nothing, it's not true. It's not him. If you don't really have anything pop into your mind, then I would say that's maybe there's something that's keeping you from hearing the Lord, and we want to talk about that. Talk to someone who knows you and loves you, who can say, hey, this is what I see in you. We absolutely need people who can point out the lettuce in our teeth. But sometimes we also need people who can help us see the good things that are in our hearts. So you may need to ask somebody who knows you and loves you, what do I bring to the table? But you need clarity around what you've been given. Second thing, if you're willing, God, I acknowledge that you've given me fill in the blanks. So I've place all of those gifts at your disposal. Use them however you want to help whoever you want. And now, next step, if you're willing. God, give me eyes this week to see the quote unquote lame beggars in my life. Show me who's stuck. Show me who needs what I have. Not because I'm great, but because you've given me this wonderful gift. God, I pray that I would not. I don't want to ram anything down anybody's throat. I don't want to come across as a know it all. I don't even want to be meddlesome. So I'm asking for opportunities. Give me eyes to see courage to step in. And God, I pray for whoever those people are that you begin to move them forward. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let me show you this one verse. This is um, 1 Thessalonians one eleven, Second 2 Thessalonians, excuse me. I love it. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of His calling. I like this part. That by God's power, God may fulfill every good purpose of yours. So think about that. What are your good purposes? If I was praying this prayer for you, or Paul was praying this prayer for you, and he said, I'm praying that God would fulfill every good purpose of yours. Are there any that you're thinking of? Every and that God would fulfill every act prompted by your faith. Are there don't hear this is guilt. Are there any acts that are being prompted by your faith in your life right now? If Paul was to pray this prayer for you, and he was to say, I'm praying that every act prompted by your faith, God would fulfill those things. Is there any, any material there for you? Would you say, yeah, I'm doing these things. I'm not saying that you're not busy. I'm asking, are there acts, if you look at your life, that are being prompted by your faith? This week, let's look for opportunities to give away just to one person. To give away one thing that He's given you. That's an act prompted by your faith. Trusting that the Lord wants to fulfill that in you. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about any and everything that you have going on in your life. This idea of investment, if that's something that stirs you, please let us pray with you about that. If you're unsure of what God has given you or maybe a bit timid about the idea of actually giving those things away. We'd love to pray that God would shore that stuff up in your hearts. So you guys can stand, and Bo will dismiss us after this song. Ministry teams, you guys can come forward, please.